Folks, welcome back to the program. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time as we broadcast live from Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. We'll jump straight into it on today's program. I'll be speaking with Paul Street. Paul is an independent, radical, democratic policy researcher, journalist, historian, author and speaker based in Iowa City, Iowa and Chicago, Illinois. He is the author of seven books to date, Empire and Inequality, America and the World Since 9-11, Segregated Schools, Educational Apartheid in the Post-Civil Rights Era, Racial Oppression in the Global Metropolis, A Living Black Chicago History, Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, The Empire's New Clothes, Barack Obama in the Real World of Power, and with Anthony DiMaggio crashing the Tea Party, mass media, and the campaign to remake American politics. Paul's latest book is called They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy, and that's available via Paradigm that was published in 2014. Paul regularly writes for Truth Dig, Telesur English, Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, and Z Magazine. So without further ado, welcome to the program, Paul. Hey, Vincent. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man, trying to make sense of all the crazy shit that's happening in the world. So we'll uh, hope you can do that for us here today. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see about that because my head is spinning. Yeah, well, let's start. Let's start big and then let's go more focused. Uh, I want to start with your Asia Truth Trump Dig article, Capitalism, The Nightmare. That was published on 20, yeah. uh, September 20th, 2017. For those who are interested, I'm going to read the first few paragraphs and then just let you riff from there. This is quoting from the article, the neoliberal arch-capitalist era we inhabit is chock full of statistics and stories that ought to send chills down the spines of any caring, morally sentient human. Nearly three-fourths, 71 percent of the world's population is poor, living on $10 a day or less, and 11 percent, 767 million people, including 385 million children, live in what the World Bank calls extreme poverty, less than $1.90 a day. Meanwhile, Oxfam reliably reports that, surreal as it sounds, the world's eight richest people possess among themselves as much wealth as the poorest half of the entire human race. The United States' self-described homeland and headquarters of freedom and democracy is no exception to the harshly unequal global reality. Six of the world's eight most absurdly rich people are U.S. citizens. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, and Michael Bloomberg. As Bernie Sanders said repeatedly on the campaign trail in 2016, the top tenth of the upper 1% in the U.S. has nearly as much wealth as the nation's bottom 90%. Seven heirs of the Walton family's Walmart fortune have among them a net worth equal to that of the nation's poorest 40%. Half of the U.S. population is poor or near poor, and half lacks any savings. Let's just start here, Paul. Let's talk about what's often missing from mainstream discourse, and that's a conversation about the economic system that we live under. Well, you know, first of all, uh, I remember the last time I talked to you, 
uh, and I was working with the number 34 people own <laughs> as much wealth as half the world's population, and you said it was eight. Well, <clears throat> between uh, you and me, you had just uh, seen the latest Oxfam report, and they did have some statistical adjustments in how they counted the uh, bottom half of the population. It's down to eight now. Uh, you're absolutely right, and who knows? You know, by now, maybe it's down to <laughs> six, five. You know, it's kind of like a countdown, four, three, two, one. Uh, it's just... Um, Absolutely phenomenal. At first, when I heard Sanders say in, in Iowa City that the um, top tenth of the one percent, that's the one percent, the top tenth of the, of the upper one percent had as much as wealth as the bottom ninety percent, nearly as much as the ninety percent. It just didn't seem possible to me. It seemed like campaign hyperbole. And I looked it up, and there's all the requisite official Harvard and Yale studies, and the, num- and the numbers add up. This is actually happening. Uh, in the world we inhabit, and yet it's almost arguably not the top danger or issue uh, uh, um, that we face under capitalism, as amazing as that might sound, because there's the even more existentially urgent and intimately related question of ecocide and the way this system of massive inequality uh, is destroying livable ecology in ways that some earth scientists quite candidly say are posing imminent danger to the species. You know, when, and this, this, this problem, which is not limited to, but is led by the problem of climate change, uh, kind of increasingly threatens to take us over and sort of turn the ancient question of, um, you know, how the pie is shared out into sort of a, almost a, a question of how are we going to more uh, equitably, you know, dish out the slices of a poisoned pie, right? I mean, who wants to turn right. a poisoned world upside down? Who wants to more um, uh, fairly distribute the outcomes of a poison system? So there's, there's that. And, of course, there's so much more. So many of the issues of our time are interrelated. Um, but, yeah, and, and all of this... Um, confronts a kind of uh, denial and ignorance that is just sort of kind of mind-blowing. I recently heard from a very smart uh, uh, progressive, an old friend of mine, who called me up on the phone to tell me that capitalism really isn't an issue to be talking about nowadays. He had various strange reasons for that and that it doesn't um, had anything really to do with profit. I don't know what he meant by that. All, all of these things, all of these problems, uh, this incredible inequality, this incredible poverty, I mean, 70% of the world's population living on less than uh, $10 a day, all of these things are very consistent uh, with sort of elementary dictionary definitions of capitalism. I mean, um, the, the lack of any real democracy, the sort of open admission in this country that what ordinary poor and working class, middle class people think is almost now completely irrelevant in the policy making process. That everybody, major, everything majorities think, uh, is trumped consistently, uh, no pun intended, uh, by the wishes and the desires of the 1% and its lobbyists and its campaign finance contributions and all of it. All of this is completely consistent with an elementary and basic uh, dictionary definition of capitalism, which is one thing and one thing only. It's an economic system, and this is Webster's, in which all or most of the means of production and distribution 
are privately owned and operated for profit. Now, I would I would include the means of investment, uh, uh, even the means of communication, uh, you know, all kinds of means, not just production and distribution, but in which in Webster's, in which the means of production and distribution are privately owned and operated for what? Well, for one thing and one thing only, profit. And in and, and Webster's definition, it says originally under competitive conditions, but there's a tendency towards concentration of wealth uh, over time. And in its later phase, by the growth of great corporations, increased government controls. In other words, it doesn't cease to be capitalism, as my phone correspondent seemed to think, uh, because large corporations displace smaller-scale businesses. It doesn't cease to be capitalism because government comes in and gets increasingly involved in various kinds of ways in the operational economy. It's not about profit. It's about the rate of profit. It's about investor profit. Um, and nothing more. It doesn't have anything to do with democracy. It's falsely conflated in American political rhetoric with democracy. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with freedom. It's consistent with slavery. It's consistent and it's been very much about seizing other people's land and raw materials. And in fact, slavery was in many ways the basis the original cash crop basis of the rise of particularly American capitals in its time. It's about firing people, replacing them with technology. It's about de-skilling workers. Uh, a lot of people on my left I know have never worked in a factory uh, even one day in their lives. And But if you ever have, you know that capitalism is very much about total authoritarian type tyranny, in, in the workplace, your opinion means absolutely nothing. You follow along in accord with the logic of production, the speed of the assembly line or the packaging line or the animal killing line, the disassembly line, and so forth. Uh, it's about outsourcing work to sections of the world economy where wages are lowest, where environmental regulations are weakest, where social safety nets are, are most um, uh, slender, where working conditions are the worst. It's about hiring and exploiting unprotected workers, slashing benefits. It's about just purely speculative investment. If, it, if you get more profit out of just parasitically buying up real estate or financial instruments, and, and if you make more money from that from actually, than you do from actually making anything, then that's what you do. It's about monopolies and price gouging. It's about dismantling competition. Uh, it's about endless pollution and deregulation and spoilation of the natural environment, extraction, the endless extraction of natural resources, built-in obsolescence. All of this. this is all part and much more terrible to mention that we don't have time for are <laughs> what capitalism is about. It's completely consistent with slavery and fundamentally inconsistent with democracy, capitalism has been wedded to slavery in many instances historically. It, it never went away under German or Japanese or Italian fascism. In fact, it was stuck. Capitalism in those countries was strengthened by fascism. It has taken U.S.-sponsored fascist forms in, this, in the last century and in this century in places like Central America, the Caribbean, Chile uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and so on. So... Um, you know, um, this is the system that, that we're, we're, we're dealing with. And, and in Webster's, it's about the concentration of wealth. It actually says that in the Webster's Dictionary definition. Anyone wants to see that tendency at work over time can read Thomas. He wasn't a Marxist, but they can read Thomas Piketty's um, masterpiece. It's an historical masterpiece uh, called Capital.
in the 21st right. century. The deceptive title because it really goes back to the 16th century. And, the, and to wrap this up, the concentration of wealth is always the concentration of power because economic power is always political power. It's the power to buy off and influence politicians. So that when the great U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, we have to make our choice. We can either have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, or we can have democracy, but he can't have both. Whether he knew it or not, Brandeis was making an anti-capitalist statement. And what do you think the reasons are for, say, the left's, what is the left in the United States, sort of unwillingness to speak explicitly about capitalism? And here I'm thinking all the way back to, say, the Occupy movement. I remember being in New York and also Chicago and speaking with thousands of different activists and many of whom were trying to come up with different language. It was like, you know, we're opposed to corporate capitalism or we're opposed to monopoly capitalism or it was very hard to pin down a sort of platform. Not that that could be a, maybe an initial political platform, but at least the long term vision of moving beyond capitalism, even and I would yeah. maybe describe Occupy as one of the more exciting sort of movements that popped up or events, whatever, however people want to describe it. But I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking of maybe a lack of imagination as well. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, it's amazing to me. One well, of know, my favorite really left-wing philosophers, I'm thinking of Slavoj yeah. Žižek, talking about how in today's society yeah. we can imagine people living on Mars, but we can't imagine living under a different economic system. I'm also thinking yeah. of the collapse of the Soviet Union and how much that has played a role in sort of our inability on the left to articulate a vision other than capitalism. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting question, and it was interesting to see you um, hear you mention Occupy, which really kind of uh, had left leadership for some time. It actually, I think, was a movement that really had to be crushed more than it could ever be co-opted, though God knows the Democrats tried to take over their language and kind of did in, in the aftermath of all of that. I, it, it, to some extent, it's the long-living reach of McCarthyism. You know, I mean, we really sort of wiped out any openly anti-capitalist left in this country in many ways uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s. They got rid of all the left-led unions, which, which actually sort of add a whole cadre of explicitly anti-capitalist militants, communists, or Trotskyists, too, and various other stripes and forms of socialists. They were sort of thrown into the dust bin of history. After World War II, I think that the looming, the, the, the still kind of living specter of the Soviet Union and sort of totalitarian Maoist China still for some people tend to um, uh, identify something which ought to be understood as social and democratic and egalitarian, right? Like socialism, like workers' control. But when they're, they're, they're wedded in, in the mindset with the dungeons, the tyranny of Stalinist Russia, of Mao's China, you know, the great famine and the cultural revolution and that Mao undertook there, sort of scares people off. I think a lot of Americans probably don't know, and we have to be careful when we talk about, so, about socialism, um, that um, we don't mean to get rid of decent, reasonable, necessary small local businesses. In other words, yeah, I'm all for small farmers and small producers who are growing organic, natural food. I would like to to turn over 
you know, a lot of the large fence post to fence post cattle raising soybean and corn corn farms in Iowa to small farmers. And I would like them to be able, yeah, to make enough of a profit to be able to stay in business and sell good local uh, deep-rooted crop, you know, sustainable organic produce to local food markets. We're actually for that. We're not against every and all small business making some profit. So I think we have to sort of make that distinction. We're not against all profit everywhere all the time. But we do not, and we have to be very clear about this, we have to make this distinction. We don't think the rate of profit on invested capital should be the determining factor in terms of uh, production, distribution, investment decisions at the commanding heights levels of the overall national and political economy. We just can't afford that. It's destroying the planet at the same time it's distributing uh, wealth upwards. We don't believe in the existence of gigantic financial institutions that, that amongst them, you know, uh, pretty much parasitically suck up this preponderant lion's share of a country's wealth and all that. So I think, you know, sort of a lot of things go into that. And sometimes I think some people who did, that, that are on the socialist left or the Marxist left tend to kind of make people hate socialism and Marxism with a very sort of strident and doctrinaire kind of rhetoric and this kind of this, you know, it's almost sounding like they think the United States in the 21st century is Russia on the eve of the Russian Revolution. You know, ninth is the Bolshevik Revolution and Lenin and Trotsky are about to come in on a uh, sealed train and, and, and all of that. So we have to have our language suited uh, more properly to the real historical circumstances we're in. All of this said, um, you know, my friend who wrote me and said I can't use the word capitalism called me and then also said we have to stay away from the word socialism. And I said, I'm not so sure. There was a presidential candidate last year named Bernie Sanders who allowed himself to be called a democratic socialist. I really sort of, he was really more of a sort of progressive New Deal liberal. That's fine. But I'm supposed to be known as a democratic socialist. And if not for the rigging of the primaries within the Democratic Party, if not for the shenanigans of the corporate Democratic Party, he, he, he would have gotten the, the Democratic nomination and may very well have defeated Trump in the presidential election. I mean, so I, I don't know that socialism necessarily dooms a candidate and millennials now, 18 to 29-year-olds in numerous polls, including Gallup, have a more favorable response to the word socialism than they do to the word capitalism. Well, imagine that. They're, they're growing up in a world where... They're in debt. Uh, jobs are terrible. They have no chance of even having as good a standard of living as their parents and all of that. So all of this is fluid and changing and dynamic and fascinating. Now, towards the end of your article in Truth Dig on Capitalism, you quote the American activist Joel Colville's formulation. And basically, he says there will be a, if the future if there is a future, there will, it will be eco-socialist because without some sort of eco-socialism, there will be no future who are some of the thinkers, writers, philosophers, activists, and so forth, who you've been reading or, or are interested in their work sort of reformulating and formulating new visions of what a socialism, particularly in this context of runaway climate change and you ecological know, I guess devastation, I would, I would, would look say like? The, the, the big three thinkers along this line, I, but I need to mention one before I forget to mention him, because he was in many ways an author who turned me on to all of this. Uh, in the mid-1970s when I was just coming up and becoming a democratic socialist. And then I probably got into careers and forgot completely about the environment. That's why I'm talking about Barry Commoner. 
uh, in his incredible book, The Closing Circle. He had a couple other books. One of them was called The Poverty of Power. And, you know, people forget how much environmentalists were identifying and warning and talking about an ecological crisis, a, a fatal environmental crisis uh, in the 1970s. That's sort of at the end of this incredible post-World War II wave of global economic expansion. And Commoner was one of those, and Barry Commoner in The Closing Circle, and in The Poverty of Power, and in some other of his books, whose titles I'm forgetting right now, really rooted all of this in the sort of anarchy and chaos and selfishness and, 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 and sort of uh, environmental nothingness and destructiveness of capitalism. Nowadays, I think your, your preeminent sort of left uh, Marxist, if you want to call them, that uh, ecological thinkers are, on, in addition to Koval, and Koval's a really interesting guy with an interesting history, uh, previously in psychology, and then he sort of became this prominent eco-socialist later in life, um, our, our John Bellamy Foster, who I believe is still the editor, or was for many years the editor of Monthly Review, the great sort of independent Marxist publication based in New York City. And now Jason Moore, uh, who is an absolutely brilliant uh, environmental historian, geographer, sociologist at the Broadell Center at Binghamton, Binghamton University in upstate uh, New York. And, and they have differences between them and amongst themselves. And, and, and Foster and... and um, and more have uh, sort of different kinds of emphases, but I think both fundamentally um, root what's going on to our ecology in 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 the profits system. So when you think of eco socialism, and here I'm thinking of people's work like Michael uh, Michael Alberts and others, and and this is particularly a strain of thought that I'm interested in as someone who's organizing and also writing and trying to read about, you know, these different ideas and these different authors. As you know, there's too much out there to consume all of it. But what does interest me looking forward is what that vision looks like in terms of, say, maybe the nuts and bolts of how, not how you make that happen, but maybe the vision that we want. So, like, what does the state apparatus look like in that sort of a formulation? You know, does it look different at the state, regional, local level? How does that state ap apparatus look different than it is today? You know, how can we change the mechanisms within the state to make it more democratic while simultaneously maybe coming up with alternatives on the local level or in the regional level? Um, yeah, I'm thinking a lot of those type of things lately and looking for work and for ideas around what that vision would look like. And, and, and I think... Well, you know, the before, before getting into state policy, just let me say that... Uh, <laughs> Most of the population is working class. Most of the population is precariously working class. Half the population has no assets. Half the population is either poor or or near poor. That is living at uh, somewhere from 150 to 200 percent of the notoriously inadequate poverty level. And 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 people wake up every day trying to figure out how they can obtain enough currency to buy basic needs of of survival and consumption. And we have to address that and our eco-socialist uh, vision. We cannot shame people because they need jobs. This was a problem I had here in Iowa with some of the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline. I, of course, hated the Dakota Access Pipeline. It is, an, it is, a, it is a technology of ecocide. Um, and I supported actions even to monkey wrench and interfere with and disrupt the Dakota Access Pipeline because it's an environmental disaster. It's a form of cancer. 
But I was sort of taken aback by the unwillingness of some environmental activists to seem to care or want to know anything about the people working on the pipeline, many of whom have been imported, in, imported into the state and making almost nothing. So it's just critical for us to talk about conversion out of coal, conversion out of fossil fuels, conversion out of ecologically disastrous forms of economic activity and into sustainable activities. We must talk about the building of wind, water, and solar as, among other things, forms of employment. And they really would be. I mean, it would be a massive task of reconstruction to reconfigure our economy. You know, I feel the same way about race, the way race is discussed all the time. I mean, I I just disagree with the way some liberal anti-racists talk about it all as a zero-sum game. It's almost like all the whites are just supposed to be ashamed of all the racism in the country, when in fact what we really need to be talking about is how we need to overcome race and racism uh, in order to be more effective in building solidarity to build organizations and movements that would serve the self-interest of white working class people and ordinary white people as well as black people. In other words, we need to appeal to, we need to keep in mind the fact that people have legitimate needs. I mean, that's there. Now, in terms of state policy, I'm hardly uh, an expert about that, but by God, we have to do the, sort of take a look at Donald Trump and do precisely the opposite. Take a look at Houston and do precisely the opposite. I mean, Houston was just built as a free-for-all zone with no zoning codes at all. Uh, and, 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 and they built mansions and petrochemical plants in this sort of giant floodplain that they at the same time are sort of creating with this endless warming of, of the planet. And, and now people are underwater and, and stuck with toxic chemicals in their living rooms. It's just the madness of a free-for-all capitalism. So, I mean, among other things, it means we wouldn't build in certain places. We won't build in vulnerable places. You can't incorporate. You can't build. You can't get federal money without full resilience, without full sustainability, without full ecological proofing. Uh, we, would, we will offer no tax subsidies. We will offer no tax breaks. We will positively uh, for, for any production, any activity at all, any activity at all. It is contrary to what uh, the environmental needs of the species are right now. I mean, the, the, there's, there's, there's all kinds of ways to embed that in. Now, you mentioned Paracon, which isn't so much state policy as a kind of way of organizing the workplace. One of the interesting things about Mike Albert's vision of Paracon is that you sort of, actually Richard Wolff, the Marxist economist, has talked about worker-managed workplaces too. You sort of empower everyday ordinary working people in the very abode of production in the very workplace uh, on the decisions that are being made on what is produced, how it is produced, why it is produced, and what purpose. And it's a game changer. You know, Richard Wolff is a very, very sharp, interesting Marxist in New York City who likes to remind us that most working-age Americans spend the majority of their waking time in workplaces. I mean, if, if, right. if you don't have democracy in the workplace... How in the hell can you possibly have a democratic society? Because that's where people spend most of their time. But if you are to invest everyday working people who have to face the environmental consequences of what is produced and how it is produced, because they don't live in gated communities, 
you know, with environmental escape pods, with their own special forest fire, you know, fire departments, you know, um, and their their own Lear jets to scoot them out of their luxury islands when hurricanes start up in the Caribbean. You know, ordinary working people have to live in the environment, and then they're involved in what's produced, how it's produced, why it's produced. You will see an environmental input from them. They don't want to live downstream from the petrochemicals of Houston, Texas. Well, it's interesting. I'm thinking of your reflections on the pipeline protests in Iowa. And here in northwest Indiana, it's actually quite the opposite. So here we're dominated by industry. We don't have a university around. We don't have radical environmental organizations. Excuse me. Um, And so it's interesting because whenever something comes up, there's sort of this overemphasis on the workers. Uh, Many of – and we understand. I mean, this is. Uh, I agree with you. We should be thinking about both equally and talking about them in the same breath. And our vision and strategy should include both the environment and the workers. But here in Northwest Indiana, the steel mills, the USW, uh, and various other entities that operate here, the BP oil refinery, the largest in the Western Hemisphere, processing tar sands from from Alberta, Canada, those oh, entities sure. and the unions who operate within them have sort of the. They are they not only are the hegemonic political economic forces here in the region, but they also sort of dominate the conversation among activists, you know, so it's not right away. It's, Hey, these industries don't have a future. They're destroying the environment, but there's always the huge, but what are we going to do without these jobs? Can we transition some of these jobs? And then the further questions, I think, which some of the deep green thinkers have brought up, and I think they're very valid. I think Derek Jensen's quote about green energy is very good. You know, so any economic system based on the use of non-renewable energy is obviously doomed to failure. But any energy, any economic system based on the hyper exploitation of renewable energy is also doomed to failure. So what worries me now is that I hear a lot of people on the left, including liberals, progressives, leftists and so forth. They just kind of like throwing these terms out there like green energy. Like what would it actually take to produce and extract the materials to create five billion photovoltaic lenses so we can start producing solar panels for everybody in North America or Europe or Africa or Latin America, then what do you do with that technology when it's through? You know, so they're well, already having see, huge I, problems in China with batteries, right. disposing of old right. solar panels. They don't know what to do with them. So I think those are like, and, and I'm not hitting you. I mean, you're not, you're, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of people, I think, including myself on the left who are just trying to, I think, draw this out and, and get a little deeper into what that actually looks like and how you would develop a society well, knowing I, those I, things. Listen, yeah, if we, were to, if, we, if we think that we're going to magically uh, save ourselves simply by replacing fossil fuels with wind, water, and solar, then, then truly we are fooling ourselves. It's entirely conceivable that we can continue to destroy the planet after that conversion as long as we remain attached to uh, a militantly kind of productionist and mass consumerist Mindset and mentality, if we're still living that way, you know, if it's still all about buying and selling and producing and consuming, if we're still attached to built-in obsolescence, if we're still attached to, you know, all these goods in, in, in little tiny packages and, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm, I'm, I think you're absolutely right. That's no solution. And it really does sort of raise questions about our fundamental relationship uh, with nature. In other words, it, 
I, I take what you're saying to be a challenge for us to think about moving entirely beyond an extractivist mind uh, attitude and response towards nature at all, even even beyond fossil fuels. I mean, it would be a, it would be a significant factor uh, to, to to substitute. Uh, you know, it would be for the good if we could, if we could if we could find a way to uh, to get off fossil fuels. And two, at the same time, not be ramping up these insane nuclear power plants, which just leave toxic waste for generations and generations and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, um, in many ways, we're sort of confronting the, the, uh, the, the, the sort of inherent dangers of industrial society, per se. And thinking about the left and, and dealing with the workers where you I mean, live during the me, pipeline protests... Raising, raising, forget, we're learning how to raise our own food again on a local basis, frankly. Food sovereignty movement, very interesting. I'm sorry, Vincent, go ahead. Right. No, 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 absolutely. And I'm, so I'm thinking of what you said about activists and organizers in Iowa dealing with the workers in the pipeline protest. And in, for me, this sort of ties into to your article, Race vs. Class, More Brilliant Bourgeois Bullshit from ta Coates. Uh, it's interesting yeah. to me how the liberals sort of process racism I think there's a difference. The difference I like to use is is personal racism versus structural racism. It seems very clear to me that liberals in this country, including many progressives and even some on the left, are more than willing to talk about personal racism in this very subjective manner. You know, you should feel guilty for this behavior or you should go punch this Nazi, which I have no problem with punching Nazis. I could give a flying fuck. My question about punching Nazis and my question about white privilege and my question about all of this sort of subjectivizing of this this sort of stuff is like, how does this how does this change the material world and how does this change the institutions that produce the sort of white supremacy and neo-Nazism that we see, you know, and, and, so, you know, this, and, and I can um, kind of, yeah, go, go ahead. This emphasis on personal and subjective racism actually can be kind of dangerous, right? Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I've always written that racism operates on at least two different levels, and one is the sort of surface open public bigotry, bigotry and, uh, and, and the open prejudice that existed in the Jim Crow South. Um, and then the other level is this sort of deeper underlying structural and institutional racism, which is basically about how the labor market is organized, how the real estate industry is organized, how the investment system is organized, how the, it, it sort of links into and, and overlaps with and sort of in many ways the same as capitalism, you know, and, and how it's the racialization of capitalism. And the problem is that, that it can become dangerous, is that when you sort of um, outlaw open public bigotry and you even get to a point culturally where you can have a black president, which we had for eight years, now, Tom Heasey Coates said eight years we were in power, and I think he's completely out of his mind. But there was a technically black president for eight years. And during that whole period of time, I would hear whites say to me again and again, don't talk to me about racism. I mean, my God, the president is white. We couldn't possibly be a racist society. But that's what this at this level one, where this kind of emphasis on uh, the surface and what's visible. So if there's a few black faces in high places, then we don't have racism anymore. Meanwhile... Black net worth took a disastrous hit during the Obama administration. Mass incarceration continued. Police shootings continued. Schools continued to be deeply segregated. The skill and drill curriculum continued to assault and cripple black minds in inner city schools. You know, I mean, I could go on and on in terms of how the institutions continued 
um, to function. And so the, the, we, could, we could keep getting these dramas played for us of how we're post-racial because white women love Oprah, because a, a number of white voters were ready to go, go for um, Obama. And, and it almost becomes a death knell for the ability of the white population to understand that racism still exists. And it can also kind of um, almost become a driver of really toxic, awful white racism. Because here they are. I mean, put yourself in Joe, marginal, six-pack, white guy's boots, and he's just limping along from one week to the next, always a month away from not being able to pay his mortgage or his uh, or his or his rent, you know, in in neoliberal, uh, economically insecure America, where the top one percent of the, you know, where the top tenth of the one percent owns ninety percent of the wealth. I mean, he's 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 increasingly not so much a member of the proletariat as the you know precariat, right? The precar- precarious person hanging onto the edge of his fading net worth, and yet he turns on TV every night and he's watching black, uh, racially mixed. News teams on the 10 o'clock news. He's seeing black sports superstars. He's seeing black uh, celebrity superstars, millionaires. Uh, for eight years, he saw technically, technically at least, black, you know, presidents. And he, it doesn't. It, it sort of tends to fuel his sense that they're getting everything, and we're getting nothing. Now it's absolutely absurd. He's wrong because black net worth is actually actually taking a worse hit after the Great Recession than white net worth did, but he doesn't know that. And a big reason he doesn't know that is we are still incredibly segregated. And 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 while blacks and whites might occasionally be in the same workplaces, they go to, still go to very separate spaces. And uh, and because of segregation, uh, a lot of whites' main image of how blacks are doing is from television and the movies. And those images are extremely deceptive. And, you know, and when people are sort of stuck at that top level, too, and they don't think about policy, then they see they saw Obama. And as far as they're concerned, he had black power running the country, you know. And, and, and they have no understanding that Obama was sort of dutifully enacting, you know, a sort of classist and at the same time racist and certainly imperialist policy agenda. But they don't know that. They're not sitting around reading Zenets and counterpunch right. and truth save all the time. So it's, it's, it's actually kind of a toxic brew. And I think it's part of how we got to this crap with Charlottesville and all that. And I will say this, you would have had these freaks going, out, going nuts in Charlottesville, maybe even more so under a Hillary Clinton presidency. Trust me. I mean, I hear a lot because Trump is in and therefore they feel emboldened. Uh, these people would be going absolutely apeshit uh, with Hillary Clinton in the White House right now. Or for that matter, with Bernie Sanders and the way. So with Bernie Sanders, they'd be convinced they were living under Marxism, Leninism. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. I and I agree with you. I think the question for organizers becomes: How much of your time do you want to spend? And the issue for me is always capacity. I mean, if we had the capacity to do all of the above, I would, and we would be doing all of the above. For us, it's always a matter of resources, time, and capacity. So. With limited resources, limited time, and limited capacity, you know, we have to make decisions on the ground about what communities are we going to organize and who are we going to reach out to. If we had the capacity, I would suggest that we make a very real effort in reaching out to rural whites and poor suburban whites or precariat whites who are living in these small towns and cities, especially here in the Rust Belt where I've spent most of my life. 
and I'm very familiar with these folks, grew up with them, have had, you know, drink with them, have watched and played sports with them my whole life and all the rest. The issue that I have is, again, moving to that limited, the, the amount of capacity we have, the existing sort of liberal left progressive groups that exist in the area are very divided and fragmented. Uh, they have a very difficult time working together. Uh, a lot of people operate in single issue campaigns. They're not really building for the long term. A lot of the groups sort of hop around from one issue to the next. People get burnt out. They come back. They go away. So our issue or my issue, at least from my perspective, has been there is an interest. And I think we should have a very systematic effort in reaching out to those poor white communities. But we have limited capacity. So it becomes difficult to decide when and how are you going to spend your time as an organizer. And then, you know, listening to other folks who just sort of they write off the all of Trump supporters like, hey, fuck them. We're not we're never going to organize these people. And maybe they're right about a significant portion of them. But of the 63 million people who voted for Trump and you talk about this in your in the Coates essay on Counterpunch, mm -hmm. let's say let's just say fucking 10 percent of them are, can be swayed. I mean, oh, what yeah. is 10 percent of 65 million people? I mean, that's a lot right. of people. You know, so oh, if yeah. we had those kinds of effort, you know, I'm not saying let's say half of them are deplorable. Let's say 75 percent of them are. And like I said, hell, let's just cast off 90 percent of them. Even if 10 percent of the 63 million who voted for Trump could be swayed, oh, yeah. I think it's worthwhile. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, um, um, you know, you've probably got a quarter of the population, I would say. I mean, I hate, I hate to say this. I've got about 20 to 25 percent of the population. It really might just sort of be sort of irredeemably vicious and racist and deplorable. I mean, I hate to use Hillary Clinton's term. I know. And it's not specifically working class. I mean, that's the, that's one of the things that Coach got right. And that's that I the great part. For, and that yeah, a number of people in Counterpunch, yeah, Dreiser and DiMaggio and others have been writing about this for crunching the numbers. It's a myth that Trump was elected by some great big wave of right-wing white nationalist working class voters. I mean, I met some of those types of people who fit that stereotype. And in fact, last year I worked for a while with one of them. I got sort of swayed by that narrative. And I also sort of looked at the numbers and realized that Trump base is actually relatively affluent in many ways as sort of the standard uh, sort of uh, middle, upply, upper, upper middle sort of petty bourgeois kind of white nationalist base. It's not necessarily all that different. So a lot of these white working class people that we need to reach out to are not so much we have to extract them from the insidious right wing that has like taken over their brains with Fox News and talk radio. There's some of those people. Most of the white working class, really the problem the Democrats have is they just abandon all working class people. They abandon working class people of all covers, colors over the last 30 plus years in pursuit uh, big business money, corporate um, uh, corporate funding, and profession and, and elite professional class backing, and pretty much demobilize these people. And they sat them down. There's another thing I agree with about Coates, uh, with Coates about they didn't just demobilize the white working class people. They demobilized a lot of the black working and lower class who don't really understand what what the party of the Clintons or Obama really has for them. You know. Anymore now, in terms of reaching out to these people, where liberals become very problematic. When, when I say these people, the white working class people, rural folks that you want to make more contact with, is they have this kind of zero sum mindset about race. They seem to have. This is one of Coates's main problems, and what I critique in his article, besides the fact that he completely 
misrepresents the left position on race. His, his, he just completely characterizes the left as against, like, as against the issue of racial justice, which is just mm-hmm. absurd. But, but Coates and others like him uh, 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 seem to have no sense of something that black leftists have long understood, including Dr. Martin Luther King, including W.E. Du Bois, including Oliver Cox, including C.L.R. James, including some wonderful black intellectuals to this day, like Glenn Ford and Cornel West and Bruce Dixon over at Black Agenda Report. Uh, the coaches have no sense whatsoever that whites also have paid a price for the power of racism in this country. They paid a huge and steep price because it's been a divide and rule strategy that has prevented them from reaching across class lines and making alliances with working class brown people, black people, yellow people, and red people for their own self-interest. And, you know, this is something that the left used to understand in this country when there was a durable institutional through thick and thin organized left in this country. One of its main slogans was black and white unite and fight. And we really need to get back to that. And so when you reach out to these people, it's not to shame them. It's not to guilt them. It's not to pretend that they're like super privileged and like that some poor white oil refinery worker who was recently fired and is trying to, you know, make his monthly payments at a trailer park needs to like write a huge reparations check for black people in the inner city. It's absurd. (laughs) That reparations check needs to come out of the top of the top 1%. These are the real people who really cashed in on the compound interest of slavery going back to the founding of this republic. That's what that's, We're not trying to shame them, but we do need to confront people honestly about their need for solidarity with people of color, in part for reasons of their own self-interest. And frankly, I think some of that is about exchange and trading places and, 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 and letting people uh, meet each other and get together more and more. Historically, that happened in the industrial workplace quite a bit. It was always kind of interesting the way the white working class in post-war America was sort of interracial and trade unionist on the job, where people depended upon each other for you know things like safety, right, in a chemical plant or an oil plant, or for that matter, packing house, you name it. And then tended more to be Republican and racist in their communities, where their property values depend on the neighborhood staying all white. There's always this kind of schizophrenic mentality in white people's consciousness about race because of that. So leading this leads right into a discussion about what's happening with Kaepernick. What do you make of everything that's happened? I have to be honest. I've been trying to stay away from some of the uh, social media and Internet uh well, really just the social media and internet in general on the weekends, I've decided that I just no longer can read article after article about everything that's going on or else I'll end up going nuts. So I've had friends contact me. I've talked with a lot of folks about it. I'm interested what your take has been. I know you don't watch the NFL, but well, I know both isn't... you and I enjoy sports, have played sports, and still watch various sports. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested what your take is. Well, no, it's not just Kaepernick now. There was a couple teams, and I'm going to forget who they were. It wasn't one of them Seattle. Um... And it might have been Seattle, uh, who are they, the Seahawks and the uh, yeah. Baltimore team. Who I want, I'm just, I'm dating myself here, I want to call Baltimore the Colts. <laughs> Jack Unitas <laughs> and all that, but, no, the Ravens, that's right. I think it was the, the Seahawks one. Didn't, what they did is they didn't come out of the locker room at all. Uh, now, my understanding is that tonight, is there a Monday night game? The Pittsburgh Steelers aren't going to come out of the locker room at all. They don't even want to sort of um, confront that issue. 
Uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me. And I've been wondering if there was going to be more on this. Colin Kaepernick, people feel different ways about the anthem, made, I thought, a relatively modest protest against the ubiquity of racist white police violence against mainly young black men in this country by, I, I guess he sat the first time, and then he kneeled. Right. Not fully standing for the anthem. Um, and he's still a highly skilled quarterback in a time when the league, just as the Chicago Bears, is short of really high-quality quarterbacks. And he still has a skill, and he could still be an asset for his team, and he is blacklisted, right, in, in a double sense, um, in a literal racial sense as well as a political sense, by the, what are they, 100% white owners of the, of the National Football League, um, in part because they fear backlash, or white lash, maybe we should call it, from their very predominantly white fan base. I've seen 85% and above as a, as a white racial breakdown of who sits in NFL stadiums. I'm old enough. Oh, I, yeah. I, I've never gone, I, I've not gone to football games, but in my lifetime, the, the decline of, of the presence of black people in sports stadiums, in my case, what I've seen in baseball, it's just, it's just incredible at Comiskey Park. As the ticket prices have gone higher and higher and higher, and sports attendance has become this kind of yuppie, upper middle class kind of thing. But, but I've been wondering if something more was going to happen here, and it seems to be now. Because the players are 70% black. And football and basketball, the careers last three or four years. They have much lower salaries. Uh, uh, the injury level is just absolutely through the roof. A lot of these guys are thrown out onto the ash heap after three or four years as a lineman in the NFL. And, of course, now it's coming out that this sport is such that, I mean, it, you, there's a hundred head-on collisions per game. These guys are just battering their brains out, and all this research is coming out about CTC and all of that. And uh, I was starting to wonder about this, and there's something interesting happening now. And, and I, I kind of support it. I kind of like it. I, I, I kind of quit watching football a few years ago because of the concussion issue. I just saw so many guys getting called, carried off on stretchers that I kind of quit. And besides, I'm full with, with baseball and basketball and, uh, and even hockey, right? And there's a violent sport. But, so, but I, I might start watching it again. If this, is, if this stuff's going to heat up, it might be kind of cool to see. I agree. I agree. And, I, you know, to be honest with you, I like it because it allows another opportunity for us to have conversations with people that normally don't talk to me about these things. So there's people at the store, right. at the gym, places that I go in town who, because this is happening in the realm of professional sports, they're more inclined to talk about these issues. I am so tired of this sort of knee-jerk habit, and you see this online all the time. It's just basic anything. Anyone puts a comment about about sports, and some leftist comes on and says, well, sports are completely idiotic, and sports are completely stupid. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I'm even like, I, saw, uh, and I even saw a comment once from Doug Henwood about that. And Henwood said that he grew up without sports, and he was not necessarily a sports guy, but then he said, but well, what the fuck's wrong with you? Excuse me. <laughs> you might have to delete that out of your radio. No, he you said, can what, say whatever you want on here. He said, he, said, what's, he said, what's wrong with you people? Way to alienate the masses. I mean, working class people follow sports, and they follow sports for some sort of very good reasons. You know, I, I, I'll, I watch sports for the same reason some people watch ballet, and some people watch Broadway musicals, and, or, and some people watch uh, go to the orchestra. 
I like oh, to see was the very there? best. I mean, what the, the greatest expression yeah. of that was what was the actress who started talking shit about boxing and the MMA and barbarians oh. during some speed? Do you remember this? Was this who's that? It wasn't Bette Midler. I don't remember was, who. Uh, that sounds like something probably Meryl Streep thinks. It I was Meryl Streep. And I couldn't, and you no, know, I say this as okay. someone who's a huge fan of mixed martial arts and boxing, grew up with it, continue this day. Uh, to love it, enjoy it, and 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 occasionally able to practice and so forth. And it was amazing to me that sort of detachment. And I thought to myself at a time when we definitely need to have conversations with people who live within different cultural bubbles. This is a great way to alienate working class and poor people who, like myself, you know, if you're living on thirty five, thirty thousand dollars a year, twenty five thousand dollars a year, it's nice to be able to have something once a week for me with the UFC. It's once a month. They have fights. I tune out. I watch the fights for six hours a night. I don't think about anything else. I have a couple beers, hang out with my friends, and that's it. You know. Well, when I was a kid coming up in the 60s, sports did not turn me into some reactionary right-wing freak. It opened up a world of interracial, also playing some sports. It opened up uh, uh, avenues to other parts of the American community. And uh, I was fascinated and intrigued by things like the the uh, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Olympics raising their fists in the black power salute and Jim Brown dropping out of football and setting up a summit in 1967 in Cleveland in defense of Muhammad Ali's decision to resist, you know, the Vietnam draft. I always thought sports and politics kind of went together. You know, and I don't know much, too, but growing up as a kid, I hear all this all the time. Well, mass sports, mass spectator sports turns everybody into a spectator, and it, may, and it makes everybody fat, and you just sit around. I was like, gee whiz, that wasn't my experience at all. I never became a great athlete or anything like that. I mean, I became a fair to middling athlete. And I would watch these people, and I would run outside, run out to them, try and do that. Try and run like Dale Spears ran, or try and shoot a puck like Bobby Hull. Shot a puck. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, a lot of what you hear is, is sort of absurd against sports, and it, it, it becomes kind of like this, um, you know, I sort of know I'm listening to these kind of narcissistic show-offs when people denounce sports or make a big deal out of being an atheist. You know, they, they want brownie points because they don't believe yeah. in God, and they're atheists. Or another one is I'm polyamorous, you know, so I guess all yeah. the rest of us, you know, you know, monogamous you know, fools are just stuck in, like, like, give me a break, whatever, live your life, but don't, don't, you know, don't do that. And besides what, she's just politically stupid. Announcing sports is politically stupid. Yeah, and giving people a sort of lifestyle, cultural litmus test is not the way to organize them. And and that's what I see, you I know, know, a I lot of this sort of... I want to qualify this a little bit, too, though, too, which is it, it is kind of gross that I can go over to Kinnick Stadium, and every Saturday night I can see that they can put 75,000 people in the stands. I mean, even for a game, I mean, oh, the, the first two games at the University of Iowa season are like against a community college flag football club from, you know, the island of Guam, you know, and I was like, okay, we need to, we need to figure out how to put that many people in the stadium, like to save livable ecology, you know, right. we do. Right. And some people, and I know a few of them, make sports almost like the center of their existence to a point that becomes absurd, and that is, that's problematic too. And also, I've known some people who um, get into a cult of gambling on sports. Oh, and yes. And it becomes quite harmful. I'm, I'm sure you've known some. I, I worked with a guy last year who just, he just couldn't get off his, his, uh, his smartphone. He was throwing his, throwing his wages away on sports. It happens all the time. Yeah. Yes, it does. And, 
<laughs> well, I'm, I'm being told by the producer we have three minutes right. left. So what could we yeah. talk about in three minutes? <laughs> hey, Paul, the, I, I know you haven't oh, watched shit, it yet. I don't I'm know. watching it with open eyes and taking plenty of notes. I like a lot of what's in Novik and Burns' film, Vietnam War. But as you know, yeah. and that my background is militarism, U.S. empire, and working with veterans and so forth. And there have been some profound reflections uh, that Vietnam veterans against the war and other folks have given Veterans for right. Peace and various other individuals on the series. So if you want to, maybe in a couple minutes, just what your thoughts have been, and, and we can leave it there. Yeah, I think that, that the strong point of the documentary, which I haven't been watching, but everything I'm hearing about it is um, is the depth in the the interviews. But the, the unfortunately, the intellectual sources are disproportionately elite white imperial operatives from within the establishment for the most part. And so we're not hearing from Nick Terse, who wrote a brilliant book about Vietnam called Kill Everything That Moved. We're not hearing from Noam Chomsky, who, after all, made his chops as the world's greatest political intellectual uh, in the 60s, denouncing the Vietnam War at the time. And I wrote this essay in Counterpunch sort of predicting what the main thing missing from the Burns-Novick documentary would be. And I will be very surprised if I'm not borne out, and I think it's that um, they will talk about it as a mistake um, yep. and, and not as a crime. They just can't seem to, they, to you know, that's the, that's the establishment narrative on it. That's what I've been hearing all my life, that it was well-intended, and it, but it was just sort of a blunder, a strategic mistake. And also they'll say that we lost it. I think they'll say that we lost in Vietnam when, in fact, well, I know we're getting too late here, but if people go to my article and counterpunch on that, they'll see... My version of Chomsky's argument that in many ways the United States actually won this war, which was a crime. Um, by the way, it wasn't the Vietnam War. I, I, there were no Vietnam soldiers over here in the United States. It was American war on Vietnam. Yep. Yep. Kim Sipes constantly reminds me of that, and he just got back from Vietnam. And, you know, I see the same thing. What scares the shit out of me, Paul, is this is 40 years later. With Iraq and Afghanistan, they're still <laughs> arguing that it was well-intentioned and it was a crime. I mean, so this— it, you know, I, I, I'm sure being older than I, you're probably much more frustrated. But nonetheless, it scares me that we can't get the history right 40 years later with Iraq and Afghanistan happening, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Africa, and all the rest. It, it's amazing to me. I, I only cringe when I think about what kind of representations uh, we'll see on PBS about the, the wars for the oil in the Middle East and geopolitical yeah, and it's power. Very and hard. It's, it's incredibly hard to get through the American population on foreign policy. So much of my criticism of Sanders was about empire. And I think about it, look back at it in respect, you know, in, in, re in, in retrospect, and I realize why was I so harsh on him about the imperial question when you can't even make traction on it in this culture anyway? I might have, I might have just given up more in advance. I hate to put it that way, but it's a very tough thing. No, I hear you. That's a conversation for another day as well. And as someone who spent most of my time in the anti-war movement, it's probably my greatest uh, regret that we don't have a movement for people to plug into. In any case, Paul Street, thank you, man. It's good to talk to you. I hope we talk soon. Okay, bye. And uh, take care of yourself. You bet. We'll be in touch. I'll see you. All right, bye -bye. see you.